LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, a masterclass in building careers, companies, and products. When you think about Silicon Valley's all-time greats, the A-team, the inventors and leaders who booted up the digital revolution, who comes to mind? Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, obviously, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. How about Tony Fidel? If you're not a tech geek or an unreconstructed Apple fanboy like me, then that name may not mean anything to you. But whether you know Tony or not, I'm certain that what he's built has changed your life. In the words of our curator, Malcolm Gladwell, Tony Fidel has made more cool stuff than almost anyone in the history of Silicon Valley. What kind of cool stuff? Well, he changed the music business by leading the team that created the iPod. He changed the world by leading the team that built the iPhone. And he brought the digital revolution into the home by inventing the Nest Smart Thermostat. But before he could achieve such spectacular success, he had to soldier through a series of failures. Back in 1991, way before Tony was a member of the Silicon Valley Hall of Fame, he was just a kid who liked computers. Actually, he didn't just like them, he was obsessed. At 21, he had already started three software companies. While most guys his age were dreaming about meeting girls, Tony was dreaming about meeting Bill Atkinson, Andy Hertzfeld, and Mark Porat was reading the, you know, the rumor pages in Mac Week magazine and Mac World magazine and hearing about the team that created the Mac started a, a company called General Magic. And I was like, I don't know what they're doing, but I have to be there because these are my heroes and I need to go learn from them. But how was he supposed to let them know that he was ready to sit at their feet? This was 91. He couldn't exactly DM them on Instagram. He would call me 10, 15 times a day, just begging, please get my resume. And he would just ask me, please, I will not stop until I work there. That's Dee Gardetti, General Magic's head of HR, speaking in a 2018 documentary. Dee eventually helped Tony get that interview, probably because she wanted him to stop tying up her phone line. And so I go into the interview, first thing in, people sat me down on the floor, ripped my tie off, ripped off my, my jacket and said, that's not how we work here. At General Magic, there was no regard for management, no deference to tradition. And while it may not seem like a big deal that Tony overdressed for his interview, his outfit spoke volumes. It told his heroes, this kid doesn't understand our ethos. There's no way he gets what we're trying to build. He's not one of us. For most people, that would be game over. But Tony Fidel is not like most people. He went home to Michigan and went back to doing what he did best. He would not stop calling me. Then I started calling like every day. Said, please call him because he is driving me crazy. I got the call. Congratulations, you got the job. The dream at General Magic was to build what they called the pocket crystal. In Tony's words, a beautiful touchscreen mobile computer that combined a cell phone and fax machine that let you play games and watch movies and buy plane tickets from anywhere. Imagine that. A device like that would have been totally ahead of its time. Few people, remember, had cell phones. No one was really online. Mobile gaming didn't exist, let alone mobile data. If Tony and his new colleagues could somehow miraculously invent all the hardware and software it would take to make their dream a reality, then it was all but guaranteed they would reshape the technological landscape. And they kind of pulled it off. What if your cellular phone, fax machine, and email were all built into one intelligent mobile device? Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg for Sony's MagicLink PIC-1000. The Pocket Crystal, renamed the MagicLink, launched in 1994, and it was, without a doubt, a technological marvel. It was also a flop. On paper, Tony and the team had created a rudimentary iPhone, and as we all know, Apple has sold more than two billion of those. So why have so few people heard of the Magic Link? Simple. As Tony came to realize, quote, cool technology isn't enough. 
A great team isn't enough. If you make it, they will come, doesn't always work. Customers need to see that your product solves a real problem they have today, not one that they may have in some distant future. Tony left General Magic in 95, and the company folded a few years after that. It was a bummer, but definitely not a complete waste, because Tony learned a lot of lessons about how to run a team, grow a business, deal with failure, and build products people actually want to buy. Those lessons paid off seven years later when Tony was on a chairlift in Colorado and he got a call that would change his life and the world. We're going to talk about that call on the show today, and we're also going to talk about those hard-earned lessons, which are at the heart of Tony's riveting new book, Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. As a serial entrepreneur, I've read a lot of business how-to books. This is, I think, the best book about how to build companies that I have ever read. It also tells the inside story of the development of the products that have transformed our world. I'm already in recent weeks applying what I've learned to how we're building the next Big Idea Club. Whatever you do, whether you're an intern or a CEO, I think you're likely to find this pretty interesting. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Tony Fidel, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Rufus, so great to be here. Thank you for having me on. It's 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 amazing to be here, and I'm looking forward to 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 your all your interesting questions. Well, I just put a copy of your new book, Build: An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making, on the desk of my 17 year old son. I've got I've got three <laughs> boys. He's my oldest. I'd say there's a 50 50 chance that he reads it, Tony. But my pitch to him was: chapters are short. It's full of outrageous stories. This guy led the teams that created the iPod or the iPhone. He's diagnosed himself as having ADHD, which seems to run in our family as well, which I think is a great brain type for entrepreneurs. And he describes himself as a mission-driven asshole. What's not to like? And I think I, <laughs> I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise that to 75% probability that he, that he reads it. Well, interestingly enough, I have a 15-year-old and... He doesn't like to read at all, and he definitely doesn't like anything that dad does. So he actually picked it up and read it, and he actually came back and said, oh, this is pretty good. I actually learned some things. So to have my 15-year-old say it's pretty good, that was like, oh, my God, like, you know, it's a miracle. <laughs> well, and to have him voluntarily read a book cover to cover that wasn't assigned in school, I think that's pretty good right there. Exactly. Um, but, well, the reason I'm so hoping that my son reads the book is that I read it as a kind of manifesto, as a kind of call to action to build cool shit. Like I see an exclamation point after build, right? It's like build command form. Don't be a consultant. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't accept the world as it is. Make it different. Make it better. Did you intend the book that way? Absolutely. The whole goal was, was to write a book that if I was 20 years old, what would I want to read? What were the things that I've learned over the last 35 years that I would want to learn from? Who would be my mentor when I was 20 yep. again to teach me these things? And so the only reason why you know I'm here talking to you now is because I had mentors along the a route who helped me to process all the noise of the world. Like, should I be making this hiring decision or should I be making this funding decision or this product decision, whatever it was. And I had great mentors around me who helped to frame these decisions in very easy to understand terms, getting rid of all that noise of complexity and going, this mm -hmm. is simply what we're trying to do here. And then when you see it through those eyes and you see it so simply, you're like, oh yeah, now I know what to do. And so what I find is, is that most of the time that I, when I speak to all these entrepreneurs is they usually have the right gut. They usually have the right instinct, but they need somebody around them who's been through it, who's been experienced to validate them. And once they get their idea or their decision validated or possible decision validated, then they're like, run for it. And they build that internal confidence 
at, into their gut over time. Now, obviously there's new, new experiences, things of that nature that a mentor could help with, but over time, the way you learn is through mentors. And so in this book, it's honoring my mentors. I'm trying to honor the things that I learned from them, as well as what I've learned since then, and putting it into in, together in one book to allow people to get at least a, you know, a first order view of how to build yourself, your career, a product, a team, a company, and everything in between. And uh, really just trying to give back and honor the mentors who passed on, my mentors who passed on. And so the, the kind of application for young folks is pick a field that lights you up, figure out who your heroes are. And then I love this advice you share, which is to be insanely persistent in pursuing them and getting your foot in the door. And now you've become someone who is a hero to many, many people. And there are lots of people who are insanely persistent at trying to get access to you, right? Absolutely, <laughs> and, Absol and you, absolutely. And you respect that, right? And you, and you have some advice for how to do that well. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, as you said, you gotta pick something that you really wanna learn. Whether you're younger or older, always go into whatever you're gonna do with, what am I going to learn? Not how much money am, am I gonna make? How much, what title am I gonna get? First yeah. and foremost, what am I going to learn? Because that's going to make you the best. And you definitely need to do that after getting out of college because you really don't know anything about life or the working world, even if you interned. So you need to go find that out. But go work on things that really are engaging and that are, you're curious about. Then from there, you know, then be relentless. Be yeah. relentless in a smart way. And what I was doing was I was showing what value I could bring. So it was showing the things that I was programming at the time. I was trying to show like I have this startup and I did this hardware and I, then I did this software and I raised money and I did. So trying to show them, I'm just not some kid off the street, but somebody who's really capable and I want to learn. So it was really just laying that out and being persistent in a, in a positive way. And you say be persistent and be helpful. And I, and I think you see people executing this with you as, as the recipient, that when you have people who come with good ideas, useful information, interesting articles, comments, questions, that a combination of persistence and being helpful and useful and curious and engaged. Yeah, it can't be a one-way street. You're absolutely right. It can't be a one-way street. It's like, I'm here, now give me something. No, 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 no. You have to give them something. You have to give something for them, not just about yourself, but something that might be of value to them or at least show how you think and what can be different. So to me, it's always reciprocal, right? You yeah, need to make yeah. sure that you're building a relationship and it's not just hire me, right? And you got to build up a relationship over time. You know, a lot of these companies, especially when they're small, General Magic, I was like employee 29 or 30, you know, they were tiny and they were very secretive. And you had to build a relationship so they get to know you and they know that you're really serious. And this was over, a, I think, a six-month, seventh-month kind of from first contact. And mm. I kept working it. And I wasn't every day for six months or seven months, but it was, you know, it was two weeks and four weeks and, you know, and different things and then submitting more things. And I want to show you this and really winning them over, winning the person who's I was sending the emails to over to go, no, this person's real. You should really take it, you know, and I know they're young yeah. and I know they might not see, sound very experienced, but you're going to want them because they have the right attitude. Because at the end of the day, even a startup can't only hire the most experienced people in the field. They have to hire a blend of people mm -hmm, who are mm -hmm. young and, and green, but eager and want to learn and can provide value, as well as those experienced people, both in management and in individual contributor roles. And you need everybody in between to make these things go. And, uh, you know, especially people when they're younger can do those nights and weekends or those long, those long hours sometimes to make sure it gets, you know, across the line. So yeah, no, all of those things count and you should just be persistent, but make sure you're building a relationship over time, not just a transaction in a week. So you, you work your ass off at General Magic, and this is the legendary electronics company that helped develop the USB and touchscreen. Yeah, and it was the iPhone 15 years too early. Right. The iPhone 15 yes. years too early. Yes. And, and I, I love your line, by the way, you, you, in the opening pages of the book, I tried to build the iPhone twice. Everybody knows about the second time, the time we succeeded. Few people know about the first, Yeah, right? Because yeah. we, we, we tend to, in, in our sort of cultural histories, we tend to edit out the failures, right? For sure. And, and in build, I try to go through a lot of failure. Like build is not just this all glossy, like trying to be an autobiography. It's definitely not trying to do that. It's going over all the failures more so than the successes. 
I love that. And actually, and, and to such a to such an extent that you actually have the end pages of the book in this <laughs> <laughs> with the with the walking lemon uh, from General you know, Magic. From General Magic, which was a failed feature, right? Um, and then you have it was an early emoji, actually. <laughs> okay, right, exactly. It was an early emoji. And then your line is do fail, learn. And the, you know, this is in the uh on the end pages of the book, which reminds me of the Beckett line, try again, fail again, fail better. Right. But this <laughs> yeah. is it, but this is about, you know, because probably when people think about you, people think about the, the incredible story of Tony Fidel, what they think of is iPod, iPhone, Nest thermostats, just juggernaut of success. Right. 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 And, exactly. and it's it, it's only it, it takes a book like this to really surface for people the fact that like there was a huge amount of banging your head against the wall, huge amount of trial and error. For ten to fifteen years to get there, right, and and it was learning, right. It was it was do fail learn. It was learn learn learn, and then ultimately everything fell in my lap when I was thirty one. But it was fourteen fifteen years of failure. Not wow. everybody is twenty something and they build a billion dollar company. Like most people, most successful entrepreneurs aren't successful until after they failed a long time and they're in their mid to late thirties. Is when you know the typical average successful entrepreneur is actually created. Right. And that does strike me as a really important kind of correction of the perception, right? Because people love the stories of Bill Gates and Zuckerberg. Kid, kid founders, kid founders. Dropping out of college and, and and like bumping into a billion dollar product, like a, like a drunk walks into a lamppost, right? It's just this like incredible precocious success but it's it's, it's actually atypical right it, 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 it's a it's a selection bias around the kind of stories we choose to tell absolutely and you know lightning strikes too and you get lucky right you know you have yeah. to be the right place right time and everything and they and I won't I don't want to you know take any credit away from them. they did build these businesses when they were young and and they yeah. were crafty and they got probably the right mentors around them and they learned a lot and they probably made a lot of mistakes but most People who are successful entrepreneurs are not until they're in their late 30s and early 40s, and w regardless of, of gender or place in the world. So it's just, you know, think about it. Our brain doesn't get fully formed till we're 25, right? Yeah, so if yeah. you're 21, 22, like most people don't have the full brain. And I don't even think Zuckerberg or Gates did at the time because it's just human development. And they got a lot of luck and they were able to put the pieces together. And a lot of times they had a family member or somebody around who really knew some of this stuff and could advise them properly, right? So, so you know, but no, I don't want to diminish, take any credit away from them because those were definitely yeah, successes. Yeah, yeah, but to some degree, when you go through, when you figure out how to do everything wrong before you figure out how to do everything right, right? Because you, uh, there are some advantages to that because you think of and not, not to, you know, obviously, you know, Zuckerberg's gotten a hard time in recent years, you know, for, for the evolution of Facebook, not, not to point any fingers, but, but to some degree, well, he a, was at the helm or he is, he at was the at the helm. helm. So, he was, at uh, the we helm, have to, but, we have to point some fingers. Yes, but anyways, that, no, I, think <laughs> I think that's legit. I think I do. I, yeah. do, I, do. I think, I think it's legit. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me that the downside of stumbling into insane success when you're in your early mid twenties and thinking that it was all you're doing opposed to some degree of luck and good timing is that you might not develop the humility that otherwise you develop. And I, I think part of the amazing thing about Steve Jobs' story is that he had early success, but then he, then he encountered a lot of humility, and then he came back. And it seems to me that through this humility and realizing how much has to come together to build these incredible companies, incredible products, how much has to align, how many different talented people and historical timing, don't you think that humility is important? Oh, it's incredibly important because I remember when I was at General Magic and I was like, I'm here with the Mac team and we're going to make this. And all the press was saying how we're going to trump, you know, um, Microsoft and we are the, you know, the the hottest ticket in Silicon Valley, blah, 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 blah. And so you get this and you start going, oh, you start believing it. Right. And then sure. the failure hits and it really hurts. And what happened for me, and this also happened to Steve in a way, was that at General Magic was a huge failure in many regards, especially around the product. But then at Philips, where I went and started a mobile computing group afterwards, we failed at sales and marketing. And I didn't know anything really about doing that. And then you fail, like, so each time you have to fail at different new subjects, right? So you can get to really learn them. And if you look at Steve, he went from the success of Apple 
from the Mac, you know, it was a marginal success. It was an amazing critical success, but a business yeah. success. It took a while to get to. But then he went and did next. And he learned the hard way about hardware and platforms because it was no longer a, you know, a, a, a green field, a, you know, a, a full green field where anyone could go and take market share. Now he was really competing with IBM and Apple and, 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 and Microsoft and everyone. And it was a whole different game. And as you said, humility came in and he was, you know, and the company was acquired by Apple and it wasn't a big sum of money. Right. It was more yeah, of a, yeah. you know, if you look at it, it was a good sum of money, but it was not what you would think it would need to be given where Apple is today, built on top of so many things that were done at Next. So, you know, you definitely get a lot of humble pie and you understand that there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of people involved and that you have to work really hard and not every single time it's going to happen. And so I think of versions 2.0, Steve, and I compare it to the stories I got from version 1.0, Steve, from the General Magic team who worked with it at Apple. And it seems like a very different person. And frankly, to me, I also feel, you know, I'm on version, I'm getting into version 4.0 of myself. But between, you know, between that first decade in Silicon Valley in the in the 90s with General Magic and Philips, and then the next one with with Apple, and then the next one after that with Nest, each of those were different versions of myself that I've learned and, and upgraded, so to speak, over time. Yeah. And I think that's something that's often underappreciated about, about jobs is people see him as this sort of like singular, sort of fiery, you know, cantankerous personality. And I, and I don't know that the degree to which he evolved and changed is, is fully appreciated. He was much more mission driven than, than ego driven. You may need a little background on Tony's taxonomy of assholes. He says that throughout your career, you're bound to encounter some real jerks. They're usually men and they come in four flavors. First, there are political assholes. These are the people who, quote, master the art of corporate politics and then do nothing but take credit for everyone else's work. Next, there are controlling assholes. They micromanage, they strangle creativity and joy. The only ideas they like are their own, and they never give anyone credit for their work. Third, we have asshole assholes. Pretty self-explanatory. They're just sucky, insecure jerks who everyone hates. And then finally, there are mission-driven assholes, like Steve Jobs. They're passionate, they speak their mind, they may not always be easygoing, but at least they care. They're willing to give credit where it's due and praise when it's earned. If you've ever worked for a mission-driven asshole, chances are you grudgingly respected them because despite their flaws, they push you to do the best work of your life. Tony, he's a mission-driven asshole. And this happened to me as well is at the beginning of my career. I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, you're ego-driven. I got I to prove myself, right? And so you're going to really work hard to prove yourself. But then over time, you figure out it's about the team. It's about the mission. It's about all these other things. Yes. And, and when you go through enough of these fails, you understand everybody's got to work together. Yeah. You start changing your point of view on the world, on your team, and understanding that we're not making, and this happened to General Magic, this happened with the Apple II, mm -hmm. we weren't making geek products for other geeks. We had to start making yeah. real products for real consumers and be very empathetic with what their problems were, not necessarily get, take their ideas, but really try to understand their insights and deliver them something that was a, a painkiller and a superpower at the same time. And it, it takes you going through those phases. And that's how mm -hmm. he got to the Mac, right? He's like, oh my God, all these people are having problems and it was geeks for geeks sake on Apple II. But Mac was built for the rest of us as, as was in the advertising line. I think that's... I think a lot of engineers and people in the tech world have to go through, stop trying to impress your teammate, the other geek on the team. Remember, you're in, you're in service of the end customer and you need to make it such complicated technology so simple that it turns into a superpower and the customers rave about you and their great word of mouth marketing because you've really empathized and give, taken away a pain and given them something that they feel like they've never had before and they can do... 10x, whatever it is, better than they could before. This to me was one of the biggest takeaways for me as somebody now building company number four is what you've learned about the importance of all these different pieces of the building process from the coding to the marketing to the design 
uh, needing to be HR, organization. HR, exactly. Team building. Everyone has to, to some degree, grok all of those different functions and understand the mission. And everyone has to be a designer. Everyone has to be a marketer to some degree, right? Everybody has to understand the story that all this stuff, you can't keep all your peas and mashed potatoes entirely separate here. You, you, you've got to, you got to bring it all together. Yeah. I, I, you know, I hear a lot of times about engineering led organizations or marketing led organizations or sales led organizations. At the end of the day, it's the customer who mm -hmm. wins and the customer led organization. And you need to have functions like product marketing and all of it. And everybody's in service of the customer. It's not just, we have a rock, you know, rocket science engineer over here. And we're going to just listen to them. The, a lot of companies fall into that trap. And a lot of people like in the sales organization, well, we're engineering led. They're never going to listen to us. That's not the right way to attitude to take. What you need to do is you need to make sure you have product marketing there. That's the voice of the customer. And those, there's many customers and making sure that you have some really good place that is a neutral ground where you're discussing all these topics and, and understanding it's for the customer, not sales versus engineering or legal versus marketing or something like that. And, and you say that though there are many customers, you've got to focus on one. Right, you on have to one. you have to choose your choose your customer. Absolutely, you can only have one customer. You know, you hear all of these customers. Oh well, we're going to be B to C. We're going to be B to B. We're going to do all of these things. And when I see plans like that come across my my inbox, I'm like these these. I always ask them, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Because you can't be both. Because it is truly a schizophrenic company to serve a B to B market with a B to C team, or vice versa. And it's very different ways you design and develop and even market the products, sell the products. And you have to really pick only one customer who you're focusing on. You really have to know what organization you're building from the outset because they're two very different things depending on the type of customer, the ultimate customer you're serving. Coming up after the break, Tony gets a phone call that changes his life and the world. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So going back to your story, so, so you spent four years at General Magic. You then go to mm -hmm. Philips as a young CTO. And, and at both places, you're really trying to build a precursor to the iPhone effectively, right? At, at, at Philips, mm -hmm. you actually released the Velo and the Nino. You then start your own company, Fuse Systems, to build an MP3 player. I think you're in Colorado on a chairlift, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, and I you, am. And it's, it's just like- Vail, in fact. Okay, there we are. We were at Vail, post.com, crash 2000. Get a call from Jonathan Rubenstein, Apple's chief hardware engineer. They're looking for someone to help them build a, quote, small electronic device. Mm -hmm. And without missing a beat, you say you're, you're a wizard at, at doing that. You think you're being invited to help them build a handheld personal assistant. Newton 2.0. But pretty soon you realize that's, that's not the assignment. 
Yeah, I understand it like in the after the first 15 minutes after signing the NDA as a consultant, what they wanted, which was iTunes. How do you take iTunes on the go? Because iTunes was about six months old at that point. They had just purchased Jeff Robbins' company, um, SoundJam, and uh, turned it into iTunes. And they wanted to get it on the go. So your company, Fuse Systems, is, is struggling a bit to raise the funding it needs. It was April 2000, right? Yeah. So <laughs> totally. it was give a, me a break. It was a horror. You, if you think now is bad, you should have seen it then. I know. I was <laughs> I, I was trying to raise money in 2000. I remember it very well. But effectively, Apple hires not just you, but your entire team to build what turned out to be the iPod. Could, can you tell us about that journey? Because that that is just astounding that I believe within 10 months, right, yeah. you guys actually released yeah. the first iPod. So, yeah, so the story there is, you know, at Fuse, making MP3, we're designing and, and building MP3 players are really digital, digital audio and video jukeboxes for like home theaters and stuff. So I had been working on that for two years at Fuse and then before that at Philips, uh, both at the on the Nino and the Velo, as well as some other other things I was doing there. So um, I was well versed in it. I understood it. It was working on it. And so when Apple called, I was like, oh, okay, I just need to brush up on a couple of things and then throw together the design in literally six weeks um, because I was already up to speed on many things, not everything, but many things. And six weeks from, that was the beginning of late January, early February, until the third or fourth week of March was the first pitch to Steve of what would become the iPod. Mm -hmm. And he green-lighted it there, you know, to move forward to the next phase, not necessarily shipping it, but what's the next mm -hmm. phase? And uh, I signed on as an employee in the middle of April. My second day I was at Apple as a full-time employee, I was on a plane to Taiwan to find a manufacturer for the iPod. So it was all these things were lining up and, you know, and because I had to build devices before and we used some of my contacts and, and we were able to, you know, land a, the right partner for manufacturing and some design. I could bring some people from uh, the, my Fuse team and then had to hire lots of people either from General Magic or Philips or otherwise, because I couldn't really hire anybody from inside Apple because they were all focused on the Mac at the time. Um, so had to build the team from scratch. And, uh, and then we also um, took a big license and ultimately bought the software that was Pixo, which was the, uh, um, not operating system, but the user interface for the iPod. So all of that stuff came together and we put, we had this, you know, team of 30 people, maybe 35, depending on how you count it. And we worked night and day and day and night with the Pixo guys, as well as the portal player guys who are making the chipset and threw it together and launched it. So literally from, you know, go, which was the end of March till the end of October was the development time. And we even had 9-11 in the middle of it. So that was also a harrowing situation. That's insane. That it's so, it's so incredible. I, I, um, I remember the first time I saw the first iPod, it was coincidentally on a chairlift. <laughs> a buddy of mine pulled this thing out and he was like, spin the wheel, you know, and, and what was it the mechanical like, wheel? Was oh, it the first yeah. gen? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I, st okay, I still have it. I still have oh, it. I'm, cool. getting, I'm, getting, cool. I'm getting goosebumps right now, Tony. <laughs> I have much, much to my wife's dismay. I have a bookshelf with all my favorite historical electronic devices. I've got the 1970s Mattel electronic football game. Remember that? Yeah. Hey, Mattel right. one or Mattel football one or football two? I think it was the, one. The green one know. or the beige one? Oh, beige. It was beige. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. you have the very first one. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, all, all my buddies had. We were obsessed with that. Roughly the size of of, of an iPod, right? Yeah. And yeah. then and then the Newton, the Palm Pilot, the Trio, the first iPod, first iPhone. So I have them all on the shelf. My wife is like, "What are you doing with it?" But that the rotating. I mean, a lot of listeners probably don't wouldn't remember this, but. The first iPod had a physically rotating disc. Mm -hmm. And the only problem, of course, is that it, uh, if you took it to the beach, you could get a grain of sand under it. Yep. Uh, and, but I was kind of heartbroken when it went on to a, a touch. a touch. Yeah, click know, wheel. Click wheel, click yeah. Wheel. But it was such a simple device, right? I, I mean, I mean, there, there, there are limited times in history when you can have just so much simplicity, a thousand songs in your pocket, and it just 
took off. And and you and, and meanwhile, you'd spent 10 years trying to build similar products, trying to get them to take off. Do you think it was how much of this was team? How much of it was historical timing? How much of it was simplicity? Like what, what how do you explain that what came together there? One thing was over the years, especially from General Magic time, I learned that we can't just invent technology we'd like to have and it just shows up. Sometimes you have to wait for the technology, right? So yeah. your timing is about technology intersection. So sometimes there's lots of great ideas like the iPhone we were doing at General Magic, but we didn't have the internet. We didn't have Wi-Fi. We didn't have cell phones, really. Uh, most people didn't even have cell phones, let alone mobile data. Right. We didn't have nobody knew about messaging or email really at the time or downloadable games and these things. So the other thing is one is understanding the technology that's right, but also are people in the right frame of mind socially, like the, the zeitgeist? Are they willing to and do they understand the pain you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm, and in the case mm -hmm. of General Magic, we didn't have the technology and no one understood the pain we were trying to solve. It was geeks solving for geeks. So when the iPod showed up, I was like, wait a second. I know about MP3. Okay, we know that the iTunes was already happening. Okay, yeah, MP3. Yes, I know that. That's going to work. Oh, there are chipsets. Hopefully, there's going to be portable chipsets. So I have to go look for portable chipsets or somebody working on it. I found one company, like I said, Portal Player, that had exactly the perfect thing. They weren't even making portable MP3 players for it. They, ha I had to get them to move it and change it. They were making uh, kind of a rack mount MP3 players. So we had to change that. And then at the same time, I was like. And people need a thousand songs in their pocket, right? They really mm -hmm. want that. I, I know it because I wanted it because I was a DJ and I was lugging thousands of CDs between gigs. In those books, we had we had those big like encyclopedic books with CDs in them. Remember that? And they're very heavy, right? So so we, all of that stuff came together. And I was like, oh my God, this can actually occur. And my biggest thing, like from a technical perspective, I knew how to build it, you know, all that stuff. The issue that I had, and the one thing I went to Steve, and this is what I learned at Philips is, Steve, I know we can build this, mm -hmm. but are you going to be able to sell and market? Because mm -hmm. I had been at Philips and there was a disaster. They could just sell TVs and DVD players and because no one was getting a bonus for selling a Velo or a Nino. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, Steve, and, and nobody would give us the marketing dollars to really market it right. And I said, Steve, I can build this thing. We can build this, not a problem. But what are you going to do to sell and market it? And he literally said, and this was just before I accepted the job, he said, I will dedicate minimally two quarters, full quarters with no marketing dollars or anything for the Mac or any of the other products. We will only focus on iPod. And if it goes well, I'll keep it focused that way for at least four quarters or longer. And uh, that's what happened. So I, I knew that I thought society was right. The technology was right. And Toshiba had just shown at a, a Japanese tech fair, the hard drive. So we even had the storage. I had the chipset, knew all the other pieces. I was like, we can do this. And he said, I'll do the sales and marketing right. And I was like, okay, now it's time. And that's really what all those pieces had to come together. And I wouldn't have known those pieces unless I had all those failures that decade before and even previous to that. Building a game-changing product isn't only about technical innovation. It's about storytelling. Think about General Magic's Magic Link. Why did it fail? Because it didn't solve a real customer problem. It didn't have a great why. Tony says you need to explain why this thing exists, why it matters, why people need it, before you focus on the what, the features, the design, that sort of thing. This is storytelling, and Steve Jobs was a master at it. For months and months during product development, Steve would workshop the product story with friends, family, colleagues, getting feedback, refining, revising. Before he told you what a product did, Tony says, Steve always took the time to explain why you needed it. Music's a part of everyone's life. Everyone. Music's been around forever. It will always be around. This is not a speculative market. And because it's a part of everyone's life, it's a very large target market all around the world. It knows no boundaries. But interestingly enough, in this whole new digital music revolution, there is no market leader. That's Jobs back in 2001. He's dressed in his trademark black turtleneck and blue jeans, pacing back and forth in front of a slideshow. But this is a more humble version of the iconic Steve Jobs product announcement. 
Instead of some grand auditorium, it looks like he's at a college lecture hall. And the audience isn't squealing with delight. They're pretty subdued, which makes sense. Apple, back in 2001, was nothing like the company it is today. It was struggling. But that was about to change. And we are introducing a product today that takes us exactly there. And that product is called iPod. The biggest thing about iPod is it holds a thousand songs. To have your whole music library with you at all times is a quantum leap in listening to music. The coolest thing about iPod is that whole, your entire music library fits in your pocket. Yeah, I, I bought the first iPod within weeks of, of seeing it on the chairlift. And then I ended up a few years later standing in line for several hours to buy the first iPhone. And fast forward, today, Apple's the most valuable company in the world. The iPod was critical to reinventing the company, gave birth to the iPhone. You know, we all have kind of wild dreams when we build companies and, and build products about what they might turn into. This has got to be a case where even you could not possibly have imagined how extraordinary the impact would be of these products. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you think about that? Well, I was very much tempered after the disaster that was general magic, right? We were going to take over the world. And then again at Philips. So over time, you get, you instead of saying, we're going to take over the world, you get hopeful. You're like, I hope this is going to be success. But I've gone through this enough. I'm going to do the best job we possibly can. I hope it's success, but I don't bet on it, right? Because you can really, if you set expectations wrong, you're like, we got to do a great job and maybe people do it and keep understanding we have to iterate on it till we get it right, you know, three generations to really get it right, whether it's the iPhone or the iPod or anything for that matter. And so... I'm always hopeful that it's a success, but I definitely no longer like, oh my God, it definitely will be. I don't ever take that because I don't want anyone to get lazy or to think, you know, not look at every single detail because they just believe it's going to be. We can't believe anything until we see the sales and we see real numbers and get customer comments back. And so now looking back, right, I can say, oh yes, it was a success. It's amazing. And it's amazing to have that. But, you know, the next time you do it, the bar is even that much higher to cross, hurt, the hurdle is even that much higher to, to jump over because you've just done it, right? And so to do it with the iPod and then say, we're going to do it again with iPhone, and it was even a bigger market and more competition and everything, that was tough, right? And then we did it again with Nest. So, you know, just being humble, sticking to your guns and yeah. understanding that it is not the first product that's going to be successful, but it's going to take iteration and everything else. If you stay humble like that, like we just talked about humility, then you might have a chance of success. Well, and, and actually, it's interesting because you don't see a lot of examples of this kind of succession of successes. And you can always say right time, right place. But I think the success of Nest really, really has kind of shown that, that you've figured out something that's replicable. Yeah, we didn't have any other competition. You know, you think about like, True. you could say Google and or Facebook. There were other mobile, you know, mobile, social mobile services out there at the same time as Facebook. And there were different other search engines, right? And sure, Google had some little bit of technology, but there was a lot of people. When we came out with Nest, there was nobody doing anything. The same products had yeah. been on the market for 10, 15 years. Yeah. So we got, I think of it as a full green field again. And And so when you told people, okay, I'm going to leave Apple and I'm going to reinvent the thermostat. You got some chuckles. <laughs> oh, a lot of laughter. A lot of laughter. Even from my wife going, the iPod guy can't do this. The iPhone guy can't do this. This doesn't make any sense. You got to do something cool. And I'm like, no, this is really cool. Let me tell you why it's cool. Because you're spending $1,000 to $1,500 a year on your energy that this thing controls. If you could save that kind of money or save a good portion of that, you're going to be very happy if, and, and you're actually comfortable. And so I had convinced myself and I talked to a couple of other really smart people that it could be done. They joined the team, obviously, you know, like Matt Rogers did, and we, do, we were off. But trust me, those first investor meetings, all the other, like, well, yeah, we'll invest in you, but we don't believe in this idea. So there was a lot of naysayers. Um, yeah. Just like there were a lot of naysayers when I was doing Fuse before iPod. They're like, ah, we're not doing that. No, no, you know, like. Yeah. And this is the difference between data-driven decision and opinion-driven decision. When you're doing something new, if you don't believe in what you're doing and you have enough data to, you know, convince yourself, not you're just not irrational about the 
your your opinion based decision. You know, that's what it takes. You have to convince investors, employees, partners, all kinds of people that you know what you're doing. And you have to really believe if you want to have any kind of success. And it's mostly out of opinion that you're going to be, if you're doing anything innovative, because the world's never seen it before. Was it part of the original pitch that this could be the heart of the connected home? Yeah. That the internet of things was coming and that this was going to be the, the kind of pole position in the new wired home. Was that, did you see that at the time or that, or that came later? That's a great question. And so what happened was I always felt it. I always knew it because I had, all, when I was doing the original business plan for Nest, I was on what are the roadmap of products? Not just the roadmap of thermostat, but what are the roadmap of products? Because I saw all kinds of other things that were broken in the home. So I was like, this is what it's going to be about. We're going we're gonna to bring love to all these unloved products that are so essential in the home. But I didn't pitch it that way because you can scare people. Because if you, mm, right. you, a platform does not, cannot exist by itself and believe people are gonna just jump on your platform. You have to solve an application, you have to bring a solution, and it has to be really world-class. And if it gets adopted, then you might have the right to create a platform out of it. But to go up to a VC and go, I'm gonna build this great platform, and that's what it is, and this is the first product that's gonna go on the platform, no one will invest in that, because that's a pipe dream. So we always had that thing, but you, you got to be careful. You can scare people if your vision is too big. You can reveal it to them later after mm -hmm. you have a certain amount of success. Or you have really smart VCs or like me, I had a one person on the board as well as a mentor who I could tell them where we were going and then they would shake their head uh, and say, yeah, 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 that's the right way to think about it. Right. Um, Interesting. Interesting. It was almost too ambitious, right? The people too, were saying, yeah, like, yeah, you can't be too ambitious, right? It's so interesting. I've always thought that when you're pitching investors, that it's really this, you, I, I found you want to oscillate between world conquering, wide-eyed, passionate mission, which, which you're feeling, of course, and then here are all the things that could go wrong and sobriety, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. are, that you kind of want to, want to communicate both. But, you know, you talk about kind of the combination of the emotional connection with the product and the logical connection, the painkiller, the need that's being solved. And I, you know, it, it just occurred to me that we were talking earlier about the physical rotating disc on the first, on the first iPod. It's probably not. I'm sure many people have noted this that actually the Nest replicated that or, or echoed that, right, or it rhymed with that, right, in the sense that the Nest thermostat had this beautiful, it continues to have, right, this beautiful physical thing you can spin, you can turn. It also <laughs> echoed the beautiful simplicity of that first iPod. I actually, we had a huge fight inside a nest going, everything's touchscreen now. This needs to be a touchscreen device. And I was like, no, no, no. We're going to use manual control, you know, a physical control, because all you have to do most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, you're just turning it up and down. What's the most satisfying thing to do is just turn a knob. I'm like, that's what we're going to do. So we had a big pushback and people are like, no, it's multi-touch. That's what the trend is in the world, just like we're seeing with cars. And I'm like, no, pick the right interface for what the task is at hand, not just because of what's trendy. And we see just too many companies following trends instead of doing the right design. And so it just it was a coincidence that it was round for the thermostat and, you know, that mimicked in some ways the iPod. But really, it was because it was the right thing for the design at the time, just like the multi-touch screen was the right thing to do for the iPhone and not the click wheel because we we're trying to make the click wheel to do dialing. And that was like going back to the the old rotary dial phones. That was dumb too. We were like, at some point, this makes no sense, right? We're going backwards, not forwards. So we really had to, you know, again, you have to pick what's best for the problem you're trying to solve, not just what's in vogue or in fashion. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book is is the story about the decision to include the Phillips head screwdriver with the Nest yep. thermostat, right? And, and, and like the obsession with kind of delight with the product and solving the problem for the customer in that story is just totally infectious for me. Can you share that story? What I realized as going through all these failures in my career and what have you, and watching Steve do this, is really the, the customer is looking at all the touch points and making their mind up about the product 
through the marketing and how they interact with the website and how they learn about the product and how they try the product and all these different things. Each of those customer touch points is a part of a customer journey. And you have to nail all of those things correctly to get people to build uh, trust in your brand, okay, to trust your brand. And so with the thermostat, with the Nest Learning thermostat, the biggest issue that we were very scared about was installation. People don't install their thermostats. The only people who, who do that are like professionals and then they sell you whatever they want. And I knew for a fact, and we all knew that the number one friction point is going to be those installers. Mm -hmm. Because if the installers are asked, should I put this product in or that product in, or what do you recommend? The installers will recommend whatever they're spiffed on or whatever they get sales incentives for, which was typically Honeywell at the time, which was you know for every 10 thermostats or every 20 thermostats, you got a free trip to Hawaii. We couldn't wow. compete with that. So, and these guys would just say, well, I've been installing these things for 20 years. These are the things that work. You need to install this. So we were well behind the eight ball there. So we had to make sure that the out of box experience and the buying experience was so credible and so trust building that people we hoped would most likely install it themselves. And so my goal was to try to get to between 40 and 60% of thermostats being self-installed as opposed to with a professional. So we spent a long time working through all the details of installation, all these other things, including special connectors, all kinds of cool, softer ways to make it easy. And one of the other things that we needed to do was if they're gonna self-install it, many people might not have the right tools. So I said, we need to put a tool in the box. Everyone's like, everyone's got a, 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 a Phillips screwdriver. I said, but not a Nest one. We want to make sure it's a complete package. When people take it out of the box, they have almost everything they need. You know, they, what we didn't put, it was wire cutters in there. That was the only thing we didn't put in the box. We put the screws, we put everything else they need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And through that screwdriver, it was a lot, people were like, oh my God, this screwdriver, they thought of everything. They put this in and this in it. And we, people were making videos about just the screwdriver online. It was the best word of mouth ever saying, I did this, I installed this myself because we put that in. And when I was thinking it was between 40 and 60% in self-installing, it actually, we did such a good job that we were over 90% self-installed. Wow. And the professional installers who installed it were like, this is a dream. I can go in there, charge $200 to install it, and it takes me all of five to 10 minutes and I make a ton of money, right? So then that was another way of where we were earning trust or uh, friends in the installation channel. So that was all well and good. But then ultimately, when we came to the next generation and the next generation of the Nest thermostat, people were like, rip the, rip the screwdriver out of the box. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is the best marketing tool we have. It helps to cement people. And remember, people are not buying new thermostats every year. These are new customers who are buying a generation two or a generation three thermostat. They should have the same experience as the early adopters. No way over my dead body are you taking the screwdriver out of the box. And guess what? Even to this day, and I'm not even at Google anymore, they still include it with the high-end uh, thermostat is the, the screwdriver in the box. So it just goes to show sometimes, you know, what seems to make logical sense yeah. doesn't make the smart emotional sense for the customer. And every customer ends up with a with a little beautiful Nest thermostat in their drawer, reminding them of their great experience. Right? It is like this marketing exactly. Tool. They use and it, it was and then like, they, they show people. It's all it's it's wonderful. And it costs what ninety cents a couple bucks, uh, which was a yeah. lot. Which, from a margin perspective, was actually very meaningful. Right? Yeah, exactly. That was a half point to a point of margin. Well, you know you've succeeded. I think when the changes that your products make to the world are so dramatic that people complain about them, right? <laughs> so you think about technologies that have transformed the way people live and interact and behave. I think about you know the automobile, the telephone, maybe TV and radio, and the iPhone, clearly, right? It, it would be up there. You said in 2017 at a talk at London's Design Museum, I wake up in cold sweats every so often thinking, mm -hmm. what did we bring into the world? Um, yep. how, how do you think about the, 
the pros and cons of, of the, the way the world's changed because of the iPhone? Well, you know, technology is neutral. It can be used for good purposes. It can be used for bad purposes. In the case of the iPhone, it goes even further than that. When we are creators of something that's so impactful to the world, whether we are a part of the company anymore or outside of that company, if you are part of the creator, I feel a personal responsibility and I make sure that I'm open and I talk about the unintended consequences of the, of the product that, you know, uh, we invented. And in this case, specifically, I went on a rant about um, screen, you know, digital device addiction. And so I went after it and, you know, and a lot of people at Apple didn't like me for doing that. And especially I was an ad Apple and they were like, shut up, Tony, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, it's an important thing. And you guys aren't listening. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. not listening to the customers. You need to do the right thing. So I went on all the TV networks. I went on podcasts all over saying it. And then six months later, I'm not saying I'm the only one who was saying it, but a lot of mm -hmm. other people are saying about it. And screen time showed up on the, on the, on the iPhone and yep. then ultimately iPad and other things. So, you know, I think, it is incumbent on those people who do change the world to watch over the, the things that they, they, they do and make sure that if there are unintended consequences, they speak up and they make the change if they can. In this case, I couldn't make the change, but I could try to help force a change. And you need to be responsible for that. You can't just say, oh, so what? Moving on, you know, let the world deal with it. I don't think that's the right way to be if you're truly a responsible inv inventor. And in the case of the iPhone, you know, I really think of it or an iPad or something like it. I think of it as a refrigerator. And because it's a it's a platform, Apple owns that, you know, more or less controls that refrigerator. Now you can put anything you want in that refrigerator. You can put bad food, like a yeah, or you can put good food. You can overconsume the food, right? But as a platform provider, you need to provide the tools for digital consumption tracking and control so that people in this refrigerator, so to speak, they can figure out and have the information, just like the nutritional guide on the side of a, you know, uh, on, on, a, on a food product, you know what's inside of it. So you know if you want to buy it, put it in your refrigerator, how much you should use it, as well as having the tools to understand if you've been consuming it too much or other ways of understanding that privacy might be, you know, might be infringed upon, those kinds of things. So I think it's incumbent on, on companies building platforms and products that are so impactful that they they do their part um, to, to make sure that it doesn't, they minimize the unintended consequences as much as possible. So companies need to take responsibility, do the right thing. But you're also saying that individuals, if the iPhone is a refrigerator, pay attention to what you put in it, and maybe how much you how, <laughs> how many hours a day you're 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 consuming food out of it right out of, out of your digital refrigerator you know you can listen to podcasts right and, and learn a mm -hmm. lot there's a lot of different things you can do sure but I, you can I, over I, you can over listen to podcasts just like you can binge watch too many tv shows right well i'm not sure I, that, that that might be the yeah. one thing i think you can't overdo with the podcast but but the uh, <laughs> of uh, course of course <laughs> but you i think you said you have a family screen time policy are you still doing uh, screen-free Sundays? Uh, you know, the biggest issue was um, the biggest issue was COVID, right? So we were just up until that, and now also the kids are uh, are older. So, so yeah, we're trying to do that, but it's not it's not necessarily the same. But when you're younger, for sure, we were doing that. Um, and so kids are older now. You know, fifteen, they have different ideas, and they go off with their friends and do what they have to do. Yeah, so. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, we have to make sure we have the right, right rules, um, depending on the age group. We talked in the beginning about this idea that we can build things, we can change the world, which is not something I think everybody feels today, right? The world has gotten so much more complicated, but I love this. I, I think this might resonate you. I've always loved this quote from Steve Jobs. Life can be much broader when you discover one simple fact. Everything around you is made up by people who are no smarter than you. The minute you understand that you can poke life, and if you push in, something will pop out the other side. You can change it. You can mold it. Maybe that's the most important thing. So it, 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 it strikes me that, yeah, we have a lot of problems in the world, right? We have problems with technology. We have problems with global warming. 
but we have agency. We can build things. We can fix things. That's one of the messages I get from, from your book. Absolutely. That's the biggest thing. And that's the reason for build. It is all about the fact that everything we see on this planet, that's Adam's base for the most part, was created by human. Very few things were created by nature. In, you know, not, I'm talking about non-biological things. And so we built this planet the way it is. We can fix the planet. We can improve it. And this climate crisis is what we need to do because our forefathers and mothers built it that way. Now we need to fix it. But we can't just sit there and be you know, upset and worried and just say, oh, it'll never get better. It's for us to fix. And that's the beautiful thing about it is we can fix it. We just need to have the right, you know, the right will to do so. And it's so empowering. And it's, that's, I, I, it's a drug for me, right? Mm. I love building. And I love writing the book all about building, helping other people, because I think it's the most impactful thing I can do to this planet than just raising kids, right? I can't, I can't even have a child. I can, you know, I can't, I'm not a woman. I can't, I can't bear a child, but this is the closest thing I can do and manifest amazing things in the world. If we put enough love uh, into them and understand the the story behind it, and make sure you communicate to enough people. And so it's infectious and I wouldn't want to change it for the world, even with the 10 years or more of failure, with all the hardships. It's just, it's so rewarding for me. When we come back, Tony's three-point checklist for spotting a great idea. You know, this conversation really resonates for me because we at the Next Big Idea Club are obsessed with what we put in the refrigerator that is our smartphones. The world is full of mental junk food, tantalizing sugary content with zero nutritional value. Doesn't help you. Indeed, it often plays on your fears and insecurities. Our mission at the Next Big Idea Club is to provide for you every day superfood for your brain. It's tasty and nutritious, snackable, a new book every single day, the very best books, the ones you need to know about, distilled down to their five key insights by the authors themselves. This is not repackaged. This is not processed or third hand. This is the world's leading thinkers telling you directly about how the latest insights from science and psychology and history can empower you to live a better life. Join us at nextbigideaclub.com. Tony isn't in the driver's seat anymore. These days, he spends his time leading an investment and advisory firm called FutureShape. He coaches and funds startups that are working to build a greener, healthier, safer future. Take this company, Menlo Micro, for example. They've designed a smaller, faster, and more energy-efficient RF switch. To explain how they've done this, you need to know a lot more about electrical engineering than I do, but I can tell you that the implications are profound. In India, for example, 8% of all electricity is used by ceiling fans. Install one of Menlo's switches, and you could cut a fan's energy consumption in half. Install them everywhere in India, and you could take ceiling fans from 8% of the country's energy usage to 4%. These are the kinds of innovations that light Tony up. The kinds of innovations that have the three elements Tony says every great idea requires. They have to solve for a why, they need to fix a problem that real people have in their daily lives, and they have to follow you around. You can't stop thinking about it. And so we are on the ground helping them in many ways. We're not just, here's a check, bye-bye. So a lot of times we're helping with the sales and the marketing and the org charts and how how to think about engineering or how to think about implementing AI inside of your company, because we have over 200 different companies that we're directly invested in. We see all kinds of great, smart technologies, smart people that can collaborate. And we're, we'll take something from health, like the health tech area and add it to the ag tech area or vice versa and get these teams that you would never think would be talking together, actually talking and making each other better. So to me, that is what's so wonderful to see is now that, you know, over 200 of these companies, I get to play in each of their sandboxes every day and get to be hands on in a lot of them, depending on where they are in their gestation. So to me, it's not, yeah, it is different, 
but I still get the intellectual curiosity. I get all the, all, learn about so many more areas from all these very, very smart people. So it's just a different point in life. And I really enjoy being a mentor, uh, just like my mentors were for me and like writing the book. It's just, it's such a dream to see all of these people realizing their, their big visions and being along for that ride and watching them grow, watching these companies grow, watching the customers come in. It's so rewarding to me. I wouldn't trade it. Okay, folks, build an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. Fascinating and useful. I'm giving a couple dozen copies to members of our team, to friends who want to build cool shit. Thank you, Tony Fidel, for being with us today. Rufus, thank you so much. Thanks for the insightful questions. I really enjoyed it. And I hope uh, you and your listeners like Build and, and it helps you in some way. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, you might want to check out our conversations with Ray Dalio, Shelley Archambault, Dan Coyle, Safi Bacall, and Anissa Ramirez. To hear those episodes, to hear any of our episodes, Follow The Next Big Idea on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. While you're at it, we'd be flattered, touched, delighted, elated if you'd leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Sound design by Mike Toda. We love building this show with the team at LinkedIn. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.